We're back from our long break. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. It's been, what, five, six days since we last talked about the news, and we still have lots of news to get to. Let's start. Following the strongly worded insistence of our editorial board, MetroHealth relented and released the investigation report involving ousted CEO Akram Boutros. Layla, it is a very detailed report by John McCaffrey, an attorney with Tucker Ellis, laying out what became the cause for Akram Boutros's firing. What does it say? Well, the report showed that at least twice... Akram Boutros failed to disclose his full compensation, and one of those times was during a meeting with the Plain Dealer editorial board. He had never reported paying himself an extra $400,000 in annual supplemental bonuses to the board of trustees, to consultants who were paid to review his total compensation, or to members of the media like us. And that, it seems, could make him vulnerable to criminal liability, according to this investigative report. Boutros is accused, of course, of granting himself $1.9 million in bonuses after conducting his own performance evaluation. And in 2018, the Plain Dealer editors and a reporter had invited him to a meeting to discuss a series of raises and bonuses granted to the hospital's top 14 leaders, including himself. And, you know, these were based on the hospital's performance-based variable compensation plan, which awards incentives for meeting certain goals in finance and quality strategy in a bunch of different categories. And Boutros, during this meeting, had highlighted records that showed he was paid just under $400,000 for helping to raise Metro Health's operating income by 381% in 2017 and revenue by 8%. But the investigative report says that what he didn't tell us was that that was only one of the bonuses he had received that year. He had given himself another $400,000 bonus in what the report calls a supplemental performance-based bonus That bonus relies on self-evaluations that senior executives are supposed to review for approval. Altogether, his bonus compensation far exceeded what his contract allowed. His contract entitled him to annual incentive performance compensation limited to 35% up to 52.5% of his million-dollar base pay, but what he granted himself exceeded 90% of his salary, according to this report. And, you know, the board says they were unaware of that and they had, hadn't given Boutros permission to conduct his own evaluations. Boutros insists that he ran all of those decisions past his senior leadership team, but investigators say, no, that's not true. They interviewed two of those top execs and they both said they had nothing to do with his performance evaluations. Yeah, we actually have audio that we'll publish today of that entire meeting. It's nearly an hour and a half. Most of it was Akram and the then board chair, I think his name was Tom McDonnell, discussing the five years that Akram had been in charge and the huge improvements he had brought to the hospital. And they're astounding. If you listen to it, you're going to think, man, this guy mm-hmm. was a whirlwind of good for Metro Health. But they, but they explain in this that... The bonus system that they had in place was the result 
of scandal involving the previous CEO who had a bonus written into his contract. And it was incredibly controversial when he got it while the hospital was losing money. Mm. It had two rounds of layoffs. Mm -hmm. So when Akron came in, they built this new bonus system based on performance. But somewhere along the way, the, the Metro Health created a supplemental bonus program. It's not clear to me still how that came about. And in addition to the standards and measuring yourself against metrics, they could give money, extra money to people for going above and beyond the call. And when this was submitted to the board, the aggregate number was submitted and they never asked for the spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And Akron Boutros was putting an extra 400K on that spreadsheet for himself. Right, right. And the board didn't know it. And it was and he, baked it, into that slate of bonuses that they approved in 2018, but it didn't itemize them. And that's where they say he was trying to slide it past them. Well, and, and mm. he acknowledged to McCaffrey, they were not aware of it. And the, the, but the answer is, well, they didn't ask, but come on, think, okay, you might have a technicality, right? Okay. You, they approved it, but we all have bosses and I don't think any of us would unilaterally take huge amounts of money out of our employers and not let our boss know. Well, and our bosses would know because most places have much better accounting systems than evidently well, Metro Health did. So even if you gave him that benefit of the doubt and say, okay, well, it was somewhere in that spreadsheet that the board didn't ask for, why did he conceal it from the plain dealer when the plain dealer asked about it in 2018? He, well, he says he didn't. He says he's not responsible for responding to public records requests. And he says he's pretty sure the reporter requested only a certain kind of bonus and not yeah. the supplemental kind. But, you know, I'm here to say that's not how we make requests. We cast our nets as widely as we can. If our aim is to find out how much hospital executives are making, we're asking for any and all bonuses and sources of income. We're not just asking for a specific kind. Well, in the McCaffrey report, he says the reporter specifically asked for their bonus program. But, and what, what you're hearing now is that, that, Akram is trying to differentiate that program from the supplemental program. But when you read all the documents, the supplemental is part and parcel to the program that the plain dealer reporter asked about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so this is shady. And there, look, you're going to hear a moment when people listen to this audio. It's look, 95% of it isn't about the bonuses, but the part that is McDonald is talking about how they hired two salary consultants. Right. This is in the McCaffrey report too. One was hired by, by Boutros and his staff. The other was hired by the board to verify the one that Boutros and his staff hired. Well, th these, these consultants determined based on the growth of Metro Health that Akram Boutros was paid not enough. And McDonald talks about, and Akram talks about how they gave him a big pay raise to meet that. Well, in the background, I mean, weeks before this meeting with our editorial board, he had gotten that extra $400,000. Nobody knew. The, the, the McCaffrey report makes clear the salary consultants that were suggesting what the, the, the compensation should be were unaware of that second mm -hmm. bonus. If they knew he was getting an extra four hundred k they likely would have had different recommendations. So it's a very uncomfortable moment as you listen to this, knowing what you know now. Yeah. And McDonald is is making this case for Akram Putras to get this raise. It's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it's it's there's there's this is not 
the way this is supposed to go down. And look, I, I, at some point, I expect people aren't going to talk. Like, I don't believe we'll try and reach McDonald to find out what he thinks about this because he stopped being board chair shortly after that. But they're all going to stop talking because, as the McCaffrey report makes clear, this could very likely become a criminal case. Right. I mean, right. Th- th- there is, you know, he discusses theft in office and other things. And if it's theft, this is almost twice as much as Frank Russo stole. I mean, he he got one million out of that whole county corruption case. This is one point nine. So it's a staggering sum of money. I mean, in the meantime, though, Boutrous has really come out swinging here. I mean, he's accusing the board of retaliation because he called them out for violating sunshine laws when they were discussing his, you know, who would replace him as CEO. I mean, it's it's uh, it's kind. I'm I was amazed to see him you know, speak out in this way. And I don't know if that's just hubris or if he does really believe he's got he's got a case. The timing of when he made that complaint, I'm still confused about. Because after, the, they started this investigation in mid-October. That's when they hired McCaffrey. By Halloween, McCaffrey had collected enough information, talked to the, the CEO, where the hospital system demanded that $1.9 million back. And he he provided it claiming that, hey, this is mine, but but I'm going to give it back because I, I don't want this to get bigger. Sometime after that, he reported to, I think it was after that, after they made the demand, after he knew he was under investigation, he reported to the Ethics Commission both his case, that, that this had gone on, and his sunshine violation. Mm. I, I don't I, from what I can see, he didn't report the sunshine violation to the ethics commission beforehand. So how is it retaliation? Mm-hmm. Good point. I, the timing needs to be cleared up. Maybe, maybe he did. Maybe he reported it earlier, and we just don't have the timeline correct. Look, we can't we can't talk about this without talking about the incredible failure of this board. Right. If if you're getting asked to provide seven million dollars in extra bonuses and you don't ask for that spreadsheet, yeah. you're just mm-hmm. not doing What's your job. What's the point of a board if that's if you're not doing that mm-hmm. kind of due diligence. You you have to. And look, there's a chief financial officer too, who should have been going to the CEO saying, hey, where is this $400,000 figure coming from? What's that based on? There should have been some check and balance. Did the CFO look the other way? I mean, what? how does this happen? I know in our organization, this could never happen. It just would never happen when we're talking about raises and bonuses each year. There must be 10 sets of eyeballs that goes over all of it. It, it, it a bunch of different steps. I, I don't see how this can happen in a responsible organization, but I think it gets back to what you said, Layla. They just trusted him implicitly. Mm. Continuing story, and we will put up the audio of that meeting later today. It's today in Ohio. The incoming Ohio House Speaker actually voted against ousting former House Speaker Larry Householder which should be distressing to anyone who cares about integrity in politicians. What else do we know about this relatively young politician, Laura? I'm glad you think he's young because he's 36. And, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, he is a hardworking, very ambitious, ultra-conservative lawmaker. His name is Derek Maron. He's so conservative that I love this line from Jerry Peltzer's story last week. That he wrote one of the first signs that he won in this caucus, which is behind closed doors, is when the president of the Center for Christian Virtue ran out in the hallway shouting for joy. So, yeah, very conservative. He's from the Toledo area. He's been proponent of several proposals that haven't passed the House to date, but it 
basically a near total abortion ban, a major expansion of school vouchers, and an anti-union right to work bill. So very conservative. He's from New York originally, attended high school at a private Christian academy founded by his father, who's a Baptist pastor. And I mean, at 19 was his first election. He was elected to city council in Waterville. That's a city of 6,000 south of Toledo. And when he was a student at the University of Toledo, he ran for mayor of that town. He unseated the incumbent, was the youngest mayor in the state. After four years, he started working for Dave Yost as a way to cut costs um, as a regional liaison, then became a realtor and began investing in real estate around the Toledo area. And then as soon as he got in the legislature, introduced a number of bills and amendments to help landlords like himself, including proposals to speed up eviction deadlines and prohibit local governments from enacting their own anti-lead poisoning rules. Can 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 this have peach get any more <laughs> to the right? I mean, he's going to make us miss Bob Cup, who completely failed in his duties to the Constitution on redistricting. And this is a stunner. You're, we're going to actually be counting on Matt Huffman, the Senate president, <laughs> to keep us from going completely off the rails. You know, you look at what's going on in Michigan. Michigan, who slaughtered the Buckeyes again for the second year in a row, and and Michigan is kind of moved back to center. It's it's got sanity in the way it's approaching things. How how much further right can Ohio go? Do, is there a wall at the end, or do you just cross into fascism? Is that the the I furthest went back extent? And- and reread Andrew's story from last week about what Ohio, like why Ohio is so red to try to come up with some kind of understanding. But it's, I don't, I don't have an answer for you. It's, I'm a little distressed by this one quote from Jonathan Deaver, who was a Republican state representative, served as Marin's mentor. And he says, the biggest problem we typically see in government is can kicking. Derek's not going to be that guy. He's actually going to roll up his sleeves and get to work and take on difficult things, whether they're popular or unpopular. And seeing as we live in a representative democracy, I would hope that we pay attention to what is popular and what our constituents want to happen. I'm not saying the popular opinion is always right. But like, that's why we elect people. Well, there are a whole lot of people coming out of the woodwork now to challenge what Frank LaRose wants to do, which is to make it harder to pass amendments to the Constitution because they want to make it more and more difficult for the voter to matter. This guy just see, I can't believe how much further to the right he is Mm -hmm. than Bob Cup. And Wow. So yeah, and he says he wants to bring you know prosperity to Ohio, and I think that's something everybody could agree on. But like how he's going to get there, I I think we're going to see some really drastic measures. Hey, you guys always say the boomers screwed things up. This is your generation. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. This kid is a millennial. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, think about you know first election at nineteen. Like this guy is. Had it, you know, like he's just been climbing politically and, and to be the speaker. Yeah. Um, interesting. Amazing. It's a good story. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's going on with a lawsuit by a large group of school districts to halt Ohio's school voucher program? Lisa, this story doesn't get a lot of coverage, I guess. It doesn't, it, people aren't paying that close attention, but it's one of the more profound things happening in the courts today could affect every school kid in the state. 
Yeah, so let's talk about it. Um, arguments were held on October 25th on a motion by the state of Ohio, who are the defendants in this case, to dismiss a 2021 lawsuit filed by 130 Ohio school districts and also parents. Uh, they're together. They're called the Ohio Coalition for Equity and Advocacy of School Funding uh, in, in Northeast Ohio. Cleveland Heights University Heights is part of this and Richmond Heights schools as well. So Franklin County Common Pleas Judge Jason Lisa Page, who heard the arguments last month, said she will make her decision about the motion to dismiss in coming weeks. So let's talk about this. The The plaintiffs filed this suit against EdChoice back in uh, 2021. EdChoice began back in 2006, and it has siphoned about $425 million for 86,100 vouchers since 2019. The program expanded every year since then. The caps were removed. Homeschool students are now allowed to apply for vouchers. And so the plaintiffs say this cripples public schools. It eliminates their resources. Money is going to private and religious schools. It's creating a private system of schools and, and further segregation and so on. But uh, Attorney General Dave Yost, who is representing the state, the Department of Education, the State Board of Education and the Superintendent of Public Instruction says, well, the plaintiffs don't even have legal standing. They say the Ohio Constitution allows educational choice and the laws allow some people to sue, but not these particular plaintiffs and not this particular lawsuit. Yeah, I'm not buying Yost saying they don't have standing, but I don't think they have a chance. I mean, ultimately, this would have to go to the Ohio Supreme Court and with the election firmly establishing the Supreme Court as a conservative court, I think that they would they would say, hey, the legislature has the right to change the rules about education. I just don't know, unless they're they're making some constitutional argument where they could get to the much more liberal U.S. Supreme Court. I just don't see how they can have success ultimately here. I, I wish they could, but, you know, um, they also pointed out, the plaintiffs said that, you know, they are not, fair school funding isn't even being funded. I mean, last year they got 16.7% of what they were supposed to get, only 33% this school year. So the plaintiffs say, okay, we're not even getting the money that's guaranteed us by the constitution. And now you're taking more stuff away. And they also say that, uh, you know, these, uh, private schools and charter schools are not subject to sunshine laws. So we don't know how accountable they are. Dave Yo says that's not true. They're very accountable. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. It's uh, like Dave Yost ultimately probably will win this suit, but he's going to have to go through a lot more argument before he gets there. It's a shame because it is crippling public schools and the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Uh, we'll, we'll have to keep a focus on it. It was uh, when the story popped up, I thought, you know, we haven't thought about this in a while. This mm -hmm. is pretty important. It's today in Ohio. If Chris Renane keeps his promise to ask voters before extending the sales tax increase indefinitely, what is he likely to get from the voters? Layla, it's another part of our poll. And I got to say, there are a bunch of readers, when they're on the wrong side of the polls, they all send me notes saying, this, this poll's not scientific. The plain dealer at should stop reporting these polls. We partnered with Baldwin Wallace University, right. the experts on polling in Northeast Ohio to do this. It is scientific. That's right. We, we commissioned this poll at BW to examine a number of questions that 
are on people's minds here in Northeast Ohio. And one of them was whether there is any appetite to extend the quarter percent sales tax to pay for a new jail. And this is a tax that was imposed to pay for construction of the Med- the MedMart and renovation of the attached Huntington Convention Center of Cleveland. And the tax would otherwise expire in 2027. But if the results of that poll are a true indication of public opinion on this, Chris Renane has his work cut out for him when he tries to make his case to voters on extending the tax. But it's not impossible. There's a path to victory here and, and, and enough folks who are uncertain and could be persuaded. So overall, the respondents are pretty evenly split. About 44% of people said they strongly oppose or somewhat oppose extending the sales tax to pay for the jail. And 42% of the respondents said they generally support it. And the rest of them are not sure. So, you know, in light of this, is Ronain, you know, thinking about backpedaling on his promise to put this question to voters? It's kind of unclear. When Caitlin Durbin reached out to him, he said it's it's too early to tell what kind of money they'll need or where it would come from. But he pledged to, quote, ensure that any request for additional revenues is necessary, vetted, and done with public discussion. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go to a vote. <laughs> it's just done with public wow. discussion, he, right? Isn't that kind it, of like threading the needle it, there? But if he doesn't take it to a vote, then he'll have violated a campaign right, pledge, right. and we will raise that repeatedly, as I, I suppose his former opponent, Lee Weingart, would. I mean, he promised. You can't go back on that promise. Uh, and and look, he's right. You got to figure out what the needs are. You got to figure out what money is available. You know, there have been a lot of shenanigans the last years with um, the county budget. So he has to figure it out. But before you raise the tax, you specifically promised. That's I mean, true. How do you not live up to that? I think it's important to note with the results of the poll that the survey was not limited to just county residents who would vote on the issue. We surveyed our entire readership area. So that certainly could have skewed the results in terms of what it means for a tax actually passing by voters. If, if the county votes along party lines, we, we might assume it's more likely to pass because Cuyahoga County is so highly democratic. Uh, and that's, that's how it falls. But, you know, so there, so there is, you know, there is something to be said for the idea that, you know, we've cast the net pretty wide in this poll. And, you know, the results aren't, aren't necessarily germane to the question of how people would vote in the county. Okay, it's today in Ohio. How did our brick-and-mortar shopping malls do during the opening weekend of holiday shopping? Laura, we had a couple of stories about this by Megan Sims over the past week, what they were doing to try and remain competitive with online, and then how they appeared to do. It was better than I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. They were pretty optimistic about this, and people went shopping over the weekend. Um, Before you ask, no, I did not go to a mall, which is actually surprising. But um, (laughs) shopping on Black Friday is part of people's family holiday weekend tradition. No more, though. Thank goodness. Do we not have those, you know, 5 p.m. Thanksgiving hours that people rush out of their dinner and like line up to get the latest technology or whatever? They spread the sales out over probably most of November and into December, but they want people to come and have a good time. So it's not just shopping. They've added all sorts of things to attract people, kickboxing, selfie spots, pottery painting, lots of restaurants, even acting classes, which I thought was really neat. So they they get them in the store also for people who want to try things on, feel the fabric and don't want to wait, you know, like they don't even want to wait 24 hours for shipping. They want to go and be able to take it home with them now, I, those people are going to stores, and and so they're doing pretty well. 
Yeah, it was a it was a surprise that not most of our kind of Black Friday reporting. It's not uplifting for the stores, but they, they, it sounds like people want to get out and have some holiday spirit. It kind of gets back to that column you wrote about embracing the stuff that gives people comfort. I mean, there's holiday decorations everywhere already. Uh, and it fits with your theme. Yeah. I think people like to be, you know, they they have family in t- from town. They want something to do with them. And this is something you can do as a family. And, you know, um, and, and now that they've added, you know, malls are entertainment, right? They, they've kind of, they're not just to go run in and pick something up, but they're to have a couple of hours of fun, I guess. I guess it's today in Ohio. (laughs) Do the folks at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport believe they will successfully persuade airlines to pay for a $2 billion expansion and revitalization of the airport? Lisa, I've continuously found this impossible to believe that the airlines are going to provide $2 billion to Cleveland, but I guess they might. Well, I don't know if it's going to be the entire cost of the Hopkins airport upgrades, but they're certainly looking at carriers that that work out of Hopkins to take on at least some of the cost. Acting airport director Dennis Kramer says they're in discussions on a new master lease for the airlines that use Hopkins. And this master lease decides what carriers pay to operate at Hopkins, including landing fees, ticket counter rentals, and so forth. Um, Kramer says increases are not a foregone conclusion. They may not have to increase these fees. The negotiations will continue through much of next year, though, so we won't really hear anything for about another year. Um, talking to the some of the, Uni- the airlines, United, the biggest one at Hopkins, has no comment so far. They've deferred to the airport for any details. Southwest Airlines is saying they're looking forward to an agreement that keeps costs low and, and maintains a good customer experience. So at Hopkins, landing fees per thousand pounds of landed weight is $1.25. That's down from $6.05 back in 2019. But that was, um, you know, the the decrease is mostly due to COVID money and uh, pension fund reimbursement, a one-time overcharge reimbursement. But they're looking at other funding sources. They increased parking fees, renting out airport land like they're doing for Sherwin-Williams with their, their hangar. They're seeking more federal money from the infrastructure Act, and they're also paying down their existing debt. The debt right now is $560 million. It's down from $782 million back in 2016. So yeah, and and phase one is $800 million. And we can talk about that more. But yeah, so the airlines are being very noncommittal right now. So we'll have to see how negotiations go. Yeah, I just, I think airlines are all about cost. And if suddenly it's going to be more expensive to fly into Cleveland, maybe they'll fly into Akron or Detroit or Pittsburgh. It's a very competitive environment. I've I've wondered from the start how this would get paid for. I'm still not confident they have the best path. There's always been talk. Why don't we regionalize the airport, build it on a much bigger regional control, a regional authority that might have some funding methods that the city does not have by itself. Let's face it, it serves all of northern Ohio. Everybody flies out of Hopkins. 
Yes, it does. But I think when we lost United as a, you know, we used to be a hub for, you know, United, and we're not a hub for any major airline right now. So that's kind of put us in a, in a difficult spot, but they're already working on what they call enabling projects for this upgrade. They're, you know, working on the sewer system right now. They're repairing the parking garage and they're also repairing hotel road, which encircles the airport. So they're getting ready for this, you know, whatever comes. Okay. It's today in Ohio. Got time for one more. Let's do the one that is appropriate for the weekend that just passed. We published a story about turkeys for the Thanksgiving weekend, the wild ones that have been popping up in the suburbs. Laura, why are they suddenly ubiquitous in our neighborhoods? Because like deer, they have plenty of food in the suburbs and no real predators. So our backyards are very cozy for for turkeys with a rich supply of bugs, seeds, and fruit to sustain them. And the Ohio Department of Natural Resources says if they're not harassed by people and dogs, they're probably going to stick around. So I actually have seen a wild turkey meandering through my backyard this fall. And no, I did not get get out anything to shoot him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're everywhere. I mean, you see them. I've actually added our office on uh, Tiedemann Road. Yeah, I've seen them out there. Mm -hmm. The family of them out there with the deer. And I didn't realize that they were basically driven out of Ohio more than a century ago, and they were reintroduced in the 1950s. So they're throughout the state, mostly in the southern and eastern part of the state, with their more of forest habitat that the birds prefer. But it does make sense, right, that like – they can get anything they want to eat. They can like hang out in our yards and nobody's going to bother them. Like probably see a lot more turkeys in the future. Yeah, I keep, just like those damn deer. I keep yeah. waiting for the bobcats and the, and the ferocious animals oh, to follow. Right. And since we're talking about critters among us, I have to mention the skunk, the skunk. at the football <laughs> stadium. <laughs> Hayden Grove, our social media guy, heard that there was a skunk there, raced out of the press box, filmed the thing, wandering all over the stadium. It's hilarious. And I got to tell you, chasing a skunk is a special level of bravery in my mind <laughs> he did not get sprayed but it was hilarious did you guys see it yes it was, yes it was great and did, i noticed how the, the section where the he ran they ran him out of the the stadium there was a video oh. on facebook this morning yeah he they ran out chased him out yeah good yeah yeah hayden had it yeah it's it was hilarious i mean it was and the, there was one point where hayden shows it scurrying between seats and he turns the camera slightly and there are all these fans there cheering um, oblivious to the fact that there's a skunk not far away how did that skunk was, not spray i mean that's such a disruptive that's not you know i don't know maybe that skunk it, is used to it <laughs> well you saw him going under seats where people had dropped food the skunk i think was much more focused on the the droppings of the food um but they did they did get it out of there check it out it's a fun fun video and that's it for today in ohio thank you lisa thank you laura thank you layla thanks everybody who listens we'll be back tuesday to talk about some more news 